trust your good hearts, you know. It doesn't take very long, just a minute or two, to get quiet and listen. And when you do, it's called a sobat. The Sufis call it a dialogue with the heart. When you ask, the heart will answer. So thank you. I think now we will shift to do a little bit of dialogue with a few people who have, presumably they have questions, but hopefully they also have answers. Let's find out. Um, I do have a question. Am I unmuted? Yes. Um, I don't think I have answers, though. I was hoping you might talk about equanimity. Um, too often I, I feel like a, a leaf in the wind. Um, someone praises me, likes what I've done, and I feel buoyed and happy. Someone else argues with me or criticizes me, and my mood goes down. Um, I think with sitting, I'm becoming more aware that this happens, but I don't feel stability. I, I still feel like I'm being pushed here and there. I just wondered if you had thoughts about that. So let's do a tiny bit of practice together because it's such an important question and you've articulated it so well because you're already you're becoming quite mindful of it. So if you're kind enough, let your eyes close. And remember a time, let's go for blame because that's the tough one. When somebody criticized, judged, or blamed you, let one pop up on the screen inside. You don't have to tell the content, but just remember it. Tell me when you have a scene. I do. Okay. And now notice you've got the blame arises, you know, in the judgment. And then you have a reaction. So notice what the reaction is without judging it. I think the reaction is being defensive, protecting myself, explaining to myself why I'm right. So feel that. Feel the defensiveness, the protection, and the contraction. If it had a center in your body, where would it be? Someplace most central to it. Hmm? Probably my stomach. So feel that place in your stomach. And what's it like? Tight, hot, cold, throbbing? Tight, tight, a bit uncomfortable. So feel it's tight and uncomfortable. You've been attacked, it feels like, and now you're tight and defending yourself and trying to make yourself right. One more question. How long ago did you learn to tighten up and contract and defend yourself? (laughs) When did you first learn it? How old were you? Oh, gosh. Pick a, pick a number. Elementary school. I mean, yeah. before that. Yeah, five years old, something yeah. like that. So see this little five-year-old Greg, and somebody's criticizing him, and he doesn't know any better. He thinks there's something wrong with him, and he has to protect himself from that. Protect, defend. So if you could put them in your lap now and hold them and say, you know, 
This is the way incarnation is. Some people like and some people don't. They judge and they bless and they praise and they blame. And we'll get through this, okay? Let me just hold you a little bit. See if he'll, how he likes that. Yeah, I think he likes that. Yeah. And now notice that you actually have become the witness to this whole drama, to the child who's been trying to defend himself and to the adult who remembers and feels it in his stomach. And feel that witnessing like the space in the room. You're actually the vast space of awareness, of loving awareness, mindful loving awareness. That's noticing all this. You've done it beautifully. And the fact that you can notice it means that it's not who you are. It's part of the drama. And the point of equanimity is to not have the reactions come. They're just reactions. You can bow to them and say, oh, yeah, here you are, pain. Here you are, fear. Here you are, defending yourself. Then you can feel that child, oh, frightened about the world with compassion. And then you can be like those images from Prolomarua. You see it all, rejecting none of it with a great heart of compassion. How are you doing? Good. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you. That's very helpful. Yeah, I mean, it's not an easy thing to do it in front of lots of people. So that was actually, there's a lot of courage to do that. I appreciate it. And it's not your question, it's our question. All these people are like hanging on the screen saying, okay, how about me too, you know? Because the point of equanimity is not to stop the dance, but to come to that stillness and spaciousness that says, oh yeah, this is part of being human, it's okay. And not actually get caught, not believe it so much. And you did it beautifully. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Jack. Can you hear me? It's Arisika. Oh, hello. I love you, Arisika, my dear friend of so long. Hi. Hi. So I I have a, a question. I I think I got this great gift in that um, on November 1st, right before the election and right before my birthday, my husband fell and fractured a vertebra. Had to be taken out, you know, in a sling, down the stairs. And he's been recovering, but it's slow. And what I've noticed, you know, there are periods that he's in pain and and so I hear this moaning and groaning, and it, and it really takes me back to the 20 years I was a midwife. And one of the questions, I feel so connected to all the people, you know, all over the world who are caring for loved ones. And I, I feel this paradoxical, immense gratitude that I can drive to, there is a pharmacy, I can drive there in five minutes, we can get all these, this paraphernalia, there's running water, there's washing machine, you know. So all this gratitude and, and at the same time, there's such, you know, just such openness of the heart. It's, it's, I mean, for the first couple of days, I actually occasionally had pain in the parts of my body 
where he was hurting. And part of the question is this issue about, I don't know, the differences or the boundaries or between like loving kindness and equanimity and compassion. And, you know, is it, I'm realizing that um, I haven't felt this raw and this connected to suffering. I know about the suffering. I've certainly, there's been all the suffering around Black Lives Matter and all these murdered black people and all of that. But this, I mean, we didn't even pay much attention to the election because we were so busy just caring for one another. And, and, and so there's some question about do I, if I don't feel this raw, I mean, I mean, it's almost like I can feel the heart opening and something coming out. I mean, is it only when I'm so close to suffering that I can feel? I mean, I just noticed how, how different it is. It's, I'm not being very coherent, but do you have any thoughts? Mm. First of all, I'm just really touched by what you say. Because we know each other for a long time, and I do know you've lived through a great deal, you know, both of the sufferings, the the sufferings, whether it's in the family or community or being a black woman in, in the in a racist, you know, culture, all of these kind of things and your work as a midwife and teacher. My experience of you is that you are actually beautiful and perfect exactly as you are. <laughs> I hate to say this to you. <laughs> and, and with that, I also know that the heart has its seasons and that just as the body breathes, you know this, you know, and the cerebrospinal fluid and the menstrual cycles with the moon and the tides and so forth. Um, not just the physical heart, but the, the connecting heart, which is what you're talking about. It opens and closes. And sometimes you want it open, you know, but you can't always live that way. And this is okay enough. I got, I got to come back and just be peaceful for a bit. It's just, it's too much to carry, you know. Uh, or sometimes it feels deeply connected, and then sometimes that passes. And because everything is impermanent, that's impermanent too. Mm. And what I hear you describing, um, and, you know, I could bow to it, is the the deep, intimate, tender connection that comes in in that kind of love that you have, you know, in your marriage and the people that you care about. And sometimes it's very raw. Sometimes it's raw because it's the world and you feel it. And then sometimes you take a breath and you go, wow, that was a time of being really raw. And it's not like one of them is right and another isn't. The space of loving awareness of mindfulness holds all of that and says, yeah, this is our human life. And I see you doing it really um, damn well. <laughs> How does that sound to you? Thank you, Jack. It's oh, just... yeah. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thank and you. is he getting better? Is he getting... Is yes. He... Yes, he's getting better. It's just slow. The body, 
His body, he's 80, so the body men. Yeah, if you're fully. older, it's, it takes its time. I, I, I'm only 75, but I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Let's see who appears next in the magic screen. This one is magical. Hi, Jack. Hi. This is Seema. This is Seema. Hi, Seema. I am thrilled to be in your presence. I'm one of your students in the MMTCP program. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Um, I have been uh, thanking the pain that I have experienced in life. Um, and what I'm noticing is that the forgiveness that I had when I was 28 and my father was shot um, in the middle of the street back home in Iran, I forgave the person who killed my do- my father. And then right after that, uh, my daughter had PTSD because of the war between Iran and Iraq. And uh, I remember that I came to you one day in Swedish Rock and I asked you, how can I forgive Ahmadinejad? And you told me, just like you and I, he had a mom who cared for him. I was able to forgive him. But as we go on, I realized that forgiving someone who has done something away from me and my family is harder. I find it much harder to forgive someone who is uh, keeping kids in the cage or doing something to people who are not uh, related to me. So I just wanted to see if you have something uh, that can help me. Mm. This is a it's not just your question. It's really a question for a lot of us. It is, um, because there is, there's so much pain that we create, we could call it tragic, because we know better as human beings, and yet some of us are doing things that bring grievous pain to children, to vulnerable people, um, and it is heartbreaking. So first, just to, now you're just describing some of the great sufferings of the world that you see, and in particular to see those who are causing suffering. I'm not even sure forgiveness is the right practice for that. You know, who are we to judge them or forgive them? What we see is they're creating suffering, and it may inspire us to do what we can to prevent that from continuing, to stand up in what ways we can for justice and to stop that in all the ways we can. I think there's a place for compassion. It's a very, very different uh, channel than forgiveness. And I think about the Dalai Lama speaking of the Chinese military who've not only taken over Tibet, as we know, and 
burned the sacred monasteries and texts and killed so many monks and nuns and imprisoned them. And he calls them, my friends, the enemy. It's interesting he uses that word. He doesn't just say, my friends. <laughs> he says, my friends, the enemy, the en- those who are trying to destroy us. Um, when he speaks, he speaks about seeing with the eyes of compassion and says, even they, just as we talked about, even they had moms, even they have their reasons, even if they're twisted and hateful and ignorant and, you know, based on so many falsehoods and greed and so forth. And he gazes with the eyes of compassion and he says, yes, they too suffer. They cause suffering and they will suffer. There's a way in which I don't want to answer your question because I don't think it's fair. Um, It's too deep a question to just give a verbal answer to. You know, I think of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was in the gulags in Siberia and tortured at times and said, you know, it would be so easy if we could blame someone over there, the evil, evil ones, and only get them out of the world and then everything would be fine. But the line cutting, the line dividing good and evil also cuts through our own hearts. And how can we get rid of a part of our heart? So I don't have a simple answer for you. Um, I think forgiveness may be the wrong frame and that actually it's just compassion for so much suffering. Doesn't um, forgiveness start with uh, compassion? It does, and it might come to that, and it might not, but I wouldn't even aim for that. If you can live with compassion, that already is, is actually quite magnificent. How does that feel to you as we talk? Does it feel like it's skipping over the problem or? Um, you said, when does the trust start? When does the trust start? Well, part of the trust is also knowing what's true, that you can trust someone who is doing terrible things to continue to do terrible things. It doesn't mean you trust them to be something other than that. You can trust your own perceptions. Oh, this person is so caught in their hate that what I trust is what I see, and that's what's there. I think you need to really trust that you see with some clarity. And then you trust, well, what can I do? What am I able to do in this world that reduces suffering? that protects those as best I can. I think the same wisdom or uh, teachings that have helped me uh, not to be destroyed and uh, be a mindfulness teacher myself in the future is going to hold hold the space for me. So that that's the kind of trust that I'm talking about. And I listen to you when you talk about the way your father was shot and killed, you know, and, and, and then your daughter, too. Um, it's so powerful to hear what you say. And you have um, what Durkheim talk, 
about going through something that was annihilating, actually. You now have a kind of moral authority to tell the truth about compassion and pain because you know it. And to say, yes, and that's not all of who we are. You know something bigger, and that's a great gift. So I honor that. Thank you, Seema. Thank you, Jeff. One last question or dialogue or whatever you learned. Hi, Jack. Oh, it's Tim. Hi, another friend for years and years. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. It's so great to see you and hear you. Uh, I think we met about uh, 44 years ago uh, back at IMS. (laughs) Every time you speak, it's something new. (laughs) Well, I'm pleased to see you. Likewise. So I've been um, kind of going back to basics a little with my practice, and I've been trying to explore the Vedana practice, and I've tried like – Vedana, the feeling Vedana, tone. right, feeling, pleasant, neutral, unpleasant, yes. And um, I've checked out like six different books and different guided meditations, and I just feel like they're either all over the place or they're not quite right. I was wondering if you had any guidance, any tips on good books or guided meditation recordings or where to go for something like that. You're talking about feeling, and there are two dimensions to it. One is the traditional dimension that every experience can be felt as pleasant or neutral or unpleasant, and we tend to grasp the pleasant and resist the unpleasant. And becoming mindful of that is a gateway to liberation. In some way, that's probably all you need. You can, like, you know... The rest of those books you can put on your shelf for somebody else to read, honestly. (laughs) But also there's something really mysterious about feeling. We are in this human incarnation, and part of what makes us alive is the fact that we can feel. I mean, I have these friends who are working on the biggest AI project in the world for artificial intelligence computing, and their big question is, is it ever going to start to feel? Because that's what makes us human, is that we feel joy and sorrow. There's the primary feelings and then all these secondary emotions. From the pleasure and pain, there comes joy and sorrow and grief and delight and, and so forth. I think more of the practice is to appreciate feeling, not to figure it out. Because it's a mystery. Nobody knows. Really, how is it that we have feeling? It's it's ridiculous that that life should feel in consciousness, and it does. You know, and it brings tears, and it brings art, you know, and it brings communion, and it brings war. It brings everything out of feelings, which is why the Buddha said, pay attention to feelings, because they can lead you different ways. Let it be more of a mystery. Keep it really simple. You know, and notice what feelings you follow. Now, there's a practice. <laughs> that I follow? <laughs> which feelings arise and which feelings you follow. Follow in what sense? 
you know, and it's not just that you avoid unpleasant and follow pleasant, but they're all the secondary feelings and emotions. And if you understand that, you start to become really wise about who Tim is in his life and his personality. And hopefully from it, there comes a greater and greater compassion and understanding, wow, look at all this. This is what human life is like, you know. I'm just um, deeply appreciative that you're practicing with beginner's mind after 44 years. <laughs> and I'll tell you a funny little story, just as a way to end. Sharon Salzberg, who we all know, the great, you know, goddess of metta and wonderful teacher and friend and colleague and all of those kind of things. When she was young in India and she was practicing as a very ardent student of Vipassana and meditation with Goenka and Menindra and Deepama, her teachers, somebody then handed her the book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind from Suzuki Roshi that was published around that time, late 60s, early 70s. And she looked at it and she sort of tossed it aside and said, I'm not a beginner. I don't need the beginning book. She told me this later, you know. And only later when she opened it, as I do, and then you read, he says, the goal of meditation, the end of meditation, (laughs) is always to keep your beginner's mind in such a deep and brilliant way. And I know that when I go on retreat, sometimes I'll take it and just open it to a random page. And wherever I am, Suzuki Roshi speaks to me. It has that kind of absolute simplicity and absolute depth. So your inquiry into the mystery of feeling um, is totally cool. And beginner's mind is an advanced practice, so I salute you for it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everyone, let's just take a couple breaths, if you will. And be quiet just for half a minute. Feel whatever's touched or inspired you that you want to remember because it's what you already know. And know that you can trust your good hearts. And then let your eyes open and unmute yourself. And do a little screen scroll. There's, you know, 20, 30, 50, 60. All of us, you can also put words in the chat if you like. And there's probably some thousands of people who are on Facebook and listening. And you can say, hi, or I love you, or, you know, namaste, or whatever weird thing you want to say. Greet each other. Bless them. Say, have a good Thanksgiving to everyone. In whatever way you like. Go ahead. We'll listen. Thank you. Thank you. I want to look at you all. Thank you, Jack. Happy Thanksgiving. 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 Happy
Like, mm. thing with real humans. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful being here all together. It's, a, it's an amazing thing, this Zoom. Yeah. Have a glorious and, and wise and loving and peaceful and quiet and grateful Thanksgiving in whatever way is possible and good for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.